invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Isaiah. We come this morning to the last of what are called the servant songs. Over the next three Sundays, we'll be looking at other passages in Isaiah that speak so clearly of Jesus Christ, our Savior. But this morning, we come to what is hopefully a very familiar text, a rich text, a rich meditation upon Jesus Christ and his suffering and his death. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 through chapter 53, verse 12. Hear God's word. Isaiah writes, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong." Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray again and ask him to help us as we study his word. Well, Father, there is so much in these verses that you have inspired by your spirit through your prophet Isaiah. Lord, would you... Grant us to taste and to see that you are good, that your gospel is good, that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is so good to lay down his life for his sheep. 
And Lord, we pray that you would exalt your Son by your Holy Spirit this morning, and that you would take the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, make them acceptable in your sight, O Lord, and use them for our building up in the faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to think of your very favorite place to travel, a place that you know very well. If someone said to you, hey, I'm going to that place and I'm going to be there for about an afternoon, what should I do while I'm there? That's probably not an easy question for you to answer, is it? It's probably an overwhelming question because you know this place so well. How can you condense it all down into a few hours? I grew up every summer going with my parents to Western North Carolina, the Hendersonville Brevard area for about five months in sixth grade. We actually lived there. And then my dad lived in Asheville after Elizabeth and I were married. And so I know that place fairly well, parts of it, and I enjoy it. It's like a second home in some ways. And, and so if you were to ask me, hey, what should I do if I have just a few hours there? It's like, I can't answer that question. Right? There's too many hikes, too many waterfalls. You, you've got the, you know, this state park, that national forest. You've got all these sites on this ray, all the little towns, all the places to go. You can't condense it down into just an afternoon. You need multiple days, multiple weeks. Well, that's a little bit what it's felt like for me to preach through these sermon songs. Right? There, there's no way that I can take the truth that's here in Isaiah chapter 53 and pack it all into 30 minutes. James Durham, a Scottish pastor in the 1600s, he preached 72 sermons on this chapter alone. 72, that's like two years worth, right? On this chapter. I'm not going to do that to you. You're probably happy. I'm just going to be scratching the surface this morning, just sort of giving us a, a taste, the broadest overview. And if you've never studied this text before, I, I hope that you feel a little bit like the, the archaeologist who, who scrapes away the, 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 the first layer and realizes that what he's looking at is, is this incredible whole buried city. Right? And he's got all the rest of his life to, to mine the depths, to dig out the riches of this city. There's so much more here to explore than we have time to do. And so my, my prayer is that you will be spurred on in your own study of God's word. How do we grow in our knowledge of God's word, uh, but by reading the Bible over and over and over again, right? Multiple passes is the way to, to discover uh, the full wealth of God's word. And so I hope that you will uh, go from this sermon and do just that with these, these verses. This morning, I want you to see from Isaiah three things about uh, our Lord's servant. First, I want you to see the servant's sorrows. Second, I want you to see the servant's substitution. And third, I want you to see the servant's satisfaction. If I could take this text and condense it down into one sentence, it would be this. God's servant suffers in our place for the joy set before him. God's servant suffers in our place for the joy set before him. And, and Isaiah wants you to see all three aspects, right? Both the, the sorrow, the suffering, the substitution, and the joy, the satisfaction of the, the ministry of the servant of the Lord, who is himself our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The New Testament makes that explicitly clear as we've seen these past weeks, but especially with this text. And we could spend the whole morning just looking at the, the multiple passages in the New Testament that, that quote from or, or that allude to these words here in Isaiah 53. This was an incredibly impactful passage in the life of the early church. And I hope it is for us this day, this year, 2021. So first, let's think together about the servant's sorrows. 
Now notice Isaiah's fourth song actually begins where it's going to end on this triumphant note of exultation. You see it, behold, my servant shall act wisely. That is, he will know what to do in every situation to bring about a, a successful and prosperous result. My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. But joy and, and exaltation come only after sorrow and suffering. And in fact, they come as a result of sorrow and suffering, as we'll see. And therefore, in verse 14 of chapter 52, Isaiah tells us of the sorrows, the suffering of the servant, Jesus, and his bodily disfigurement. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Isaiah prophesies that our Lord Jesus will be beaten into a pulp, unrecognizable as a person, to the point that many, he says, will be astonished, will be appalled at what they see. Verse 15, kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Isaiah is giving us a glimpse, isn't he, of the shocking physical suffering that Jesus endured at the end of his life. But his sorrows actually began at birth, and they were present with him throughout his entire life. Look at chapter 53, verse 2. He grew up before him. He, the servant, grew up before the Lord like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. This reference to dry ground points us to the lowly and the unpromising circumstances into which Jesus was born and and grew up. You remember Joseph and Mary were were poor parents, right? We know that because when they go to the temple at at Jesus's 40th day uh, to bring the appropriate sacrifices and offerings to the Lord, Mary brings two turtle doves, right? Two pigeons, which was in Leviticus chapter 12, the offering appointed for those who could not afford to bring a lamb. So Jesus is born into a poor household. You remember in Matthew, we're told he's hunted down as an infant by King Herod. Joseph and Mary and and baby Jesus have to flee into Egypt as fugitives. Eventually they make their way back to Nazareth, an insignificant town of which Nathaniel could say, can anything good come from Nazareth? Like Nazareth? How can the Messiah come from Nazareth? He was, as Isaiah tells us, like a root out of dry ground. As he grew up, Isaiah tells us there was nothing spectacular, nothing uh, impressive about his appearance. No, he was physically unimpressive. He had no form or majesty that we should look upon him, says verse 2. No beauty that we should desire him. You wouldn't have seen Jesus and thought, now there's someone who's going places. Like there's someone who, he might even be the Messiah. You wouldn't have had that thought. You rather would have wanted to leave and get away from him when he entered into the room. You wouldn't have wanted to be with him. You wouldn't want him to have been seen with him. On the contrary, Isaiah tells us in verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. He was shunned and hated and forsaken. As we might say today, he was canceled or he was Persona non grata, we don't want to have anything to do with this person. As one from whom men hide their faces, Isaiah says in verse 3, he was despised and we esteemed him not. His contemporaries were often embarrassed by him. They had done the math and they had determined that, that he was just some ordinary, unfortunate man who wasn't worth knowing or being with. How does the Apostle John put it? 
He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Indeed, throughout his life, he was what Isaiah says there in verse 3, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He knew suffering and pain intimately and intensely. His whole life could, in a sense, be characterized by sadness. The sadness of losing loved ones to death, Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. The sorrow of loneliness, of being unwanted, excluded, scorned. The sorrow of being oppressed and treated unjustly, as we see there in verses 7 and 8. The struggle of being essentially homeless during his ministry, of, of going hungry and thirsty, of, of knowing the weariness of weakness. Jesus endured the agony of being assaulted by Satan in temptation day after day. He endured the distress of watching those that he had created resist and reject him. He saw the terrible distress and effects of sin in this world that the Father had created through him, the eternal Son. And of course, he experienced the misery of death, of being, as we read in verses 7, 8, and 9, led to slaughter, taken away, cut off out of the land of the living. Both physically and spiritually, Jesus the servant, he knows what it is like to experience sorrow. Suffering, sadness, grief. But why? Why did Jesus experience all this sorrow, all this suffering? Well, that brings us to our second point, the servant substitution. You notice in verse 4, Isaiah tells us that the reason why so many assume that he was a man of sorrows was this. We, and the we there is emphasized in the Hebrew, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Human nature, Isaiah is telling us, looks at Jesus and treats him the way that Job's friends treated Job. Well, clearly, you are suffering because of something that you have done. You are being punished by God, stricken by God, smitten by God, afflicted by God, because you are a wicked person. That's how we esteemed him. But no, says Isaiah, the truth is actually the exact opposite. Jesus did nothing wrong at any point in his life. And his suffering was actually as a substitute in the place of his people, on behalf of his people, for the sake of his people, his sinful people. Look at verse 4, the beginning. Here Isaiah explains the true reason for his suffering. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. It's true, he was stricken, smitten, and afflicted of God, but it was not for any sins that he had committed. Look down at the end of verse 9. You heard Peter quote this, didn't you, in 1 Peter 2. He had done no violence, no sin. There was no deceit in his mouth. He suffered even unto death, because he was suffering in our place for our sins. He was suffering what we should have suffered. Even though his generation, as verse 8 says, didn't consider that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, they didn't get it. They didn't understand what was going on. Yet that's exactly what was happening. Jesus was shouldering the sorrow, the pain, the grief, the sin that we 
had deserved and merited because of our rebellion. Jesus' substitutionary work was penal. That is, it was for a penalty. It was for punishment. He was receiving the punishment that we deserved because of our sin. And Isaiah puts it so beautifully in verses 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Don't miss this. In Jesus' sorrows, in Jesus' sufferings, we see what sin deserves. We see what our sins deserve. We were the guilty ones. We were the ones filled with sin. We were the ones, Isaiah says, who were alienated and unreconciled to God. We were the ones who were sick with sin. We were the stupid, foolish sheep that wandered away, not just sort of ignorantly, but intentionally, on purpose, rebelliously. We did what we wanted to do, when we wanted to do it, how we wanted to do it. We walked in our own ways. We deserved to be pierced to be crushed, to be punished, to be wounded to the point of death. But God sent his servant son, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, in order to bear our sin, to take the blow that was aimed for us. Jesus pushes us out of the way of the Mack truck, as it were, and he bears the full brunt of that destruction. Jesus was the substitute. He was the stand-in sufferer. He was the stunt double, except that it's not a stunt. Right? The ammunition is not blanks. It's, it's live. And Jesus takes the hit. He receives on himself to his hurt all of our sin and all the punishment that our sin deserved. Now you see Isaiah tells us there in verses 7 and 8, humanly speaking, Jesus' death was unjust. Right? He was oppressed. He was afflicted, Isaiah says, By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And yet, Isaiah says that he received it willingly. He received it even silently. Verse 7, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. How could Jesus do this? How could he endure so silently, so sinlessly, the suffering and the sorrow that he went through? Well, it's because... He knew what Isaiah writes here in verse 10, that it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. Jesus knew that it was the Lord's good pleasure to lay on him the iniquity of us all because this substitutionary work of the sinless servant on behalf of his sinful people had been appointed by God as the only way to bring sinners back to God, to reconcile sinners to himself, to restore his wayward wandering people back to him. This was the plan that the Father and the Son had agreed upon before the foundation of the world, and this is the only way of salvation for sinners. We've got to hear this, don't we? Because by nature, we are so prone to think that we can be our own substitute. We don't need another substitute. We can be our substitute. We can pay for our own sins by doing a lot of good things in place of the bad things that we have already done. Have you noticed how this theme comes out often in movies, particularly Christmas movies? 
Right? We were watching just the other night Home Alone 2. A great Christmas movie, not as good as Home Alone 1, right? But it's still a good one. And, and you've probably seen it a thousand times, but do you remember the scene when Kevin McAllister is talking to the pigeon lady, right, up in the, you know, the attic, and, and she says, so why are you by yourself on, on Christmas Eve? And Kevin answers, he says, well, yeah, I've gotten into trouble. He says, oh, so you've, you've done something wrong. He says, lots of things. And then she says this. She says, well, did you know that a good deed erases a bad deed? And Kevin says, well, it's getting pretty late. I don't know if I have enough time to do enough good deeds for all the bad things I've done. And she says, oh, but don't you know it's Christmas Eve and good deeds count for double on Christmas Eve, right? Now we laugh and we think, oh, that's sort of ridiculous, right? It's kind of sappy, sweet Christmas movie talk. And yet, and yet, it's the way that we are hardwired because of sin to think. It's the operating system in the heart of fallen men and fallen women who are dead in sin. It, it, this karma, works, righteousness, self-salvation, this is the way that we actually do think. Right? But Kevin is right. There is not enough time to do enough good deeds to outweigh, to make up for your bad deeds. And part of the reason for that is because you never stop doing bad deeds. Right? And as Isaiah will go on to tell us later on in his book, even your good deeds are as filthy garments in God's sight. So good luck earning your own salvation. You can't do it. You need a substitute. You need the sorrowing and suffering servant, Jesus Christ. He has come his work as the substitute for all of those who put their trust in him is the only hope for sinners. If your hope is in your good deeds, you have no hope. But if your hope is in his good deeds, if your hope is in his death on behalf of sinners, his dying for your bad deeds, then your hope is secure. Your hope is sure Jesus had no sins for which to die. Therefore, when he dies, his death is credited to our account. His death is that by which God takes away our guilt and cleanses us from all of our sin. He heals us. He brings us back to himself, back to the fold that we have peace with God. Jesus is the substitute for all those who would look to him in faith. That brings us to our final point, the servant's satisfaction. Look at verses 10 and 12, 10 through 12 again. Isaiah writes, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, or perhaps better translated, the numerous, because he poured out his soul to death 
and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. He makes intercession for the transgressors. In these verses, Isaiah lists many aspects of what flow both to Jesus and to those for whom Jesus died because of his substitutionary sorrows. Now, we don't have time, of course, to unpack all the the riches and glories of Jesus' exaltation here in these verses, but I want you to see quickly five parts of, of the Father's reward to the Son for his work. First, Isaiah says there in verse 10, he will see his offspring. He will see those wandering sheep that the Father had given to him from before the foundation of the world come back to God as sons and daughters. What did Jesus say in John 6, 36? All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will not cast out. Second, Isaiah says he shall prolong his days. Death will not be the end of him, Isaiah says. Here, Jesus has promised resurrection, eternal life. Third, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, verse 10. Jesus is the executor of God's plan, the one through whom God accomplishes his purposes. Through suffering, he is exalted, and his people are exalted in him. And so we read in verse 11 that out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Having come, having finished the work the Father sent him to do, he is able to look at that work, that completed work, with satisfaction. A job well done, a mission fully accomplished. You've felt that before, whether it's a a hard day working in the yard, in the garden, in the house, something, and you look back and you see the job is done, and it's done well. Right, The satisfaction that comes from that. Here, Jesus is promised that he will delight in a completed task. He will rejoice in the effects of his triumphant victory. But ultimately, all that satisfaction comes because of what you read there in verse 11. Because by his knowledge, the righteous one makes many to be accounted righteous. By his substitutionary work, Those for whom Jesus dies, those who put their hope and trust in his work are justified in him, are declared right with him, are made righteous in God's sight. They are accounted as right with God, as having never done anything bad. Jesus's goodness is credited to their account and because their sin had been credited to his account there on the cross. To use the language back in chapter 52, verse 15, so he shall sprinkle many nations. Many nations will be sprinkled by his shed blood, cleansed of the guilt of sin through his priestly offering of himself as a guilt offering, Isaiah tells us. Restored to fellowship with God, healed of all of our sin. And look at verse 12. The father shares the spoils of his victory with all of those for whom Jesus died, the many. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He will divide the spoil with the strong. Or as I said, perhaps better translated, the numerous, the many. Jesus is the one who has poured out his soul unto death, numbered with the transgressors, bearing the sin of many. Brothers and sisters, this is the servant's sorrows, the servant substitution, the servant satisfaction. But let me close by making some application that I hope you you will see flows out of this text and and even out of what we've already read from 1 Peter 2. 
And the first question I want to ask you here in this room this morning is this. Do you believe what Isaiah says here? Do you believe these things? Isaiah was proclaiming truth about Jesus over 700 years before he came. Do you believe that? Do you think that that is true? And do you think that what what Isaiah says is true is confirmed by the Gospels? Do you believe that Jesus is the suffering servant, the man of sorrows, who died as a substitute for sinners, who through his death reconciles to God and brings us into a state of peace? Every sinner who puts his trust in him, do you believe that the Gospel is true? If you've never believed, then this morning I urge you, I exhort you to believe it is your duty, it is your responsibility. And yet, the Bible tells us that faith is also a gift. It's something that you can't do in your own strength and power. You must cry out to God for help. You're not just a wandering sort of foolish sheep. You're a helpless sheep. You can't believe in your own strength. And unfortunately, Isaiah knows that many will not believe. That's why he begins chapter 53 by asking this question, who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the the arm of the Lord been revealed? The apostle John, the apostle Paul, they both quote this verse as they reflect upon the reality that so many continue to reject and to despise Jesus Christ as he is proclaimed. And so if you don't believe this morning, I'm not surprised. I'm saddened with the same sadness that Jesus himself expressed as he was about to go to the cross, as he wept over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he said. How often I wanted to gather you and gather your children together the way a a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. I plead with you, believe the gospel. If you do not believe in Jesus this morning, then what Jesus experienced on the cross, you will experience eternally, separated from God in hell. That is the truth of the gospel. Stop wandering away from God, but return to him by his grace through faith. But if you have returned, if you have, as Peter says, returned to the shepherd and the guardian, the overseer of your soul, If Jesus has borne your sin in his body on the cross as your substitute, then here's a word that I want you to hear. Peter tells us this, doesn't he? Do not forget that the suffering substitute is also the suffering example. Jesus gave himself on the cross, not only to die for your sins so that you would be freed from the penalty of sin, but to show you who belong to him, what it means to live as one of his followers. Peter has told us, hasn't he? Jesus suffered for you as an example that you should follow in his steps. So as you suffer, as you endure sorrow in life, what is the call? The call is that you would walk in righteousness, that you would entrust yourself to the one who judges righteously, Peter said. Remember what Peter told you, that Jesus died for you so that you would die to sins and live to righteousness. That you might not only be healed from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin, the practice of sin. We are called to be servants in the servant. Jesus 
puts this so beautifully, doesn't he? In Mark 10, 43 to 45, when he says, whoever would be great among you must be servant of all. Whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Alluding to this very text. And so Jesus is calling us to give our lives away, even as he gave his life away. Serve as you have been served by him. Serve in order that you might proclaim his substitutionary mission and finished work to the nations. So do you believe what Peter, or what Isaiah says here? And if you do believe, do you see that it calls you to serve? It calls you to suffer? It calls you to follow in his example? But the last application I would make flows out of that very last phrase of verse 12. He bore the sin of many and he makes intercession for the transgressors. As we wrap up these servant songs, I hope that you have seen the beauty of the humanity of Jesus Christ. And we see that in some ways so particularly here when we read of Jesus making intercession for the transgressors that he is a faithful and a sympathetic high priest. He is the one who Hebrews 4 tells us is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. How? Because he's he is a man. He has lived a human life. He still is a man. In every respect, he has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And therefore, the author to the Hebrews says that we can confidently draw near to the throne of grace, receiving mercy, finding grace to help us in our time of need. But also in Hebrews 2, verse 18, he wrote these words, because Jesus himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to come to the aid, to, to help those who are being tempted. Our great high priest, again, he knows what it is to be tempted, to live in human form. He knows what it is to suffer, to be filled with sorrow. And therefore, we can come to him with confidence because we know that he is alive forevermore, no longer a man of sorrows, but a man of joy, exalted on high, ever living to pray for us, available to help us, to hear us, to give us his mercy and his grace. Do not take this privilege for granted. I opened my chest of drawers the other day and I noticed that if there was a BOPS gift certificate from last Christmas with $5 still on it, what was I thinking all year, right? Do not let this privilege of the intercessory high priestly work of Jesus, the suffering servant, be like an unused gift card that you got last Christmas. Draw near to him each and every day. Make use of Jesus, our high priest, who has offered himself as a sacrifice, who offers to help us in our time of need. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, Jesus, we thank you for the incredible richness of your work. Oh Lord, help us not to take it for granted. Help us, oh Lord, never to grow too comfortable or familiar with it, forgetful of it, neglectful of it. Oh Lord, may we meditate day by day on the truth that we are sinners saved by your grace and that you, oh Lord, Continue to live as our high priest to pray for us. Oh, Lord, would you 
open the eyes of those who are blind even this morning? Would you draw your people to yourself, those you have given your son from before the foundation of the world? Oh Lord, be pleased to glorify him by your spirit so that you might receive all the glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you for the way that Isaiah has told us and told us and told us of the glory, of the majesty, of the humanity of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man. Lord, help us to believe, help our unbelief, and help us to walk as servants in the servant. For your name's sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.